wait a minute, this sounds like rock and or roll. Welcome to Rock and Door Roll. I'm your reluctant host, BJ. On today's episode, you're going to get to hear an in-depth conversation I had with Greg Renoff about the early years of Van Halen. Greg Renoff is a college history professor, a historian with a PhD, and he's writing a book about the early years of Van Halen. The book is going to be called Van Halen Rising. You can find Greg on Twitter at Greg Renoff, G-R-E-G-R-E-N-O-F-F, and he has a website, vanhalenrising.com where you can keep tabs on when his book might be coming out. Greg emailed me to say he was a fan of the podcast and I asked him if he'd like to come on when he told me he's writing this book about Van Halen and talk about the early years of Van Halen. So you're going to get to hear that conversation right now that I had with Greg Renoff, author of future book Van Halen Rising and you're going to get to hear some of the early demos that Van Halen recorded stuff with their original bass player Mark Stone, stuff produced by Gene Simmons, and then the demos they did with Ted Templeman before the first album. But right now, before we get into the conversation I had with Greg Renoff, you're going to get to hear a song that the band apparently recorded in 1973, probably when they were still called Mammoth. And apparently when they recorded this, there was a short period of time where Van Halen were actually a five-piece band, including a keyboard player. And this is so this is a 1973 demo by Van Halen or Mammoth called Glitter. <laughs> Okay, so what made you want to write a book about Van Halen? And then you're just focusing on like pre-first album Van Halen for the book? Yeah, so um, you know, I grew up a huge fan. I saw Van Halen in 1984 in New Jersey. Um, and it one of those things like a lot of people will say, you know, a concert changed their life. It made me just a fan for life. Uh, devastated when Roth left the band in 85, of course. And um, then I ended up going to graduate school um, in history and did a um, 
master's degree and then a PhD and actually ended up writing a dissertation which turned into a book called The Big Tent, which is about um, traveling circuses. So in the 19th century, these big tent shows would travel around huge, you know, three ring circuses, hundreds of people working for them. Um, you know, 10,000 people would come out to these shows. And I sort of realized when it was all said and done, I had done the book that, um, that I really had wanted to write a book about arena rock and didn't have the guts at the time when I was in graduate school to write a book around arena rock. And so I sort of, you know, decided to focus on the pre arena rock entertainment world, which was the big circuses that used to travel. And so, um, became a college professor, um, working at a university here in, um, Missouri and ended up that I was just, uh, thinking more and more about the fact that there's been these great books written about Led Zeppelin and about Jimi Hendrix and about the who that really detailed their early days. And yet I would read all the stuff online that was to me more mythical than anything else. Um, never based in any sort of evidence or any sort of research anyone's done. And, um, you know, it would be like Eddie and Alex changed instruments and then they played at Gazzari's and then they got to the Starwood and then they got signed by Ted Templeman and there'd be all this sort of fluff in between with backyard parties and stuff. Um, and I just realized no one else was going to write this book. And so my plan is to start from the beginnings, um, with Genesis and Mammoth, the early Roth band, Red Ball Jet, um, and work my way up till around 1979 or so. That was kind of the thing I wanted it to be sort of the, the prequel to their, their big break and fame. Um, and in trying to sell and market the book proposal, um, and then eventually get this book out is that you're trying to differentiate yourself in some ways from other books. And so there's been a couple of, um, books on Van Halen, Ian Christie's comes to mind and that have really, I think, tread that ground about the, um, later years, you know, yeah. the same Hagar years and the Roth years pretty well. And so people know that stuff, but to me, you have the arguably, um, the greatest guitar player to come along since Jimi Hendrix, um, a band that was massive, at their time, at their peak, obviously, even through the Hagar years, they were massive. Um, and yet no one had done any of the type of work on them that I think other bands of their caliber um, had been done. I just thought, hey, no one else is going to write this book. I've got the ability. I've got the means. And, you know, I went to graduate school to learn how to be a historian. I am a historian. So why not write it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love the idea. I love the idea that you wanted to write about Arena Rock. So that would have been just a book about like an all encompassing book about Arena Rock. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, so I ended up writing about, you know, Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey and these, these huge, um, huge circuses. And then, you know, it just took me a while to kind of reflect on how I got interested in the circus. And I realized what appealed to me was the same stuff that went on at these circuses is the stuff that went on when I was a kid, when I would go to the, the Brendan Byrne Arena and we would show up early and we'd have beer and we would, you know, get fucked up and, you know, get ready for the show. And people did the same stuff for circuses. They would go on circus day and drink a whole bunch of booze. And so I guess what I'm saying is like, after I wrote the, the book on the circus and kind of sat back and said, what really drew me to this topic? Like really, really drew me. I started to realize, well, it was not that different for a lot of people in the 19th century. It was their big, you know, their big day. It was like, okay, this, what are we doing this weekend? We're going to see this big show. And it was spectacular. And, um, it was things they had never seen before, you know, and I remember sitting in that arena as a kid, seeing Van Halen and uh, seeing those huge lights come down that said 1984 and, you know, Roth with the absolute uh, ability to control the crowd. Um, you know, it just was incredible to me. And so I, I kind of realized that was the parallel. Um, but I never intended later on to go back and write a book about arena rock. I, I just immediately said, well, the book on Van Halen is what needs to be written. 
Yeah. There are so many bands that there hasn't been the book that should be written about. But yeah, Van Halen obviously are one of the biggest. So, but, you know, the the years for all this stuff is really confusing. Like, I, I've always read that Roth joined Van Halen in 74. But yeah, that's not actually right. So right. he joined in 73. And right. so when he joined, it was called Mammoth. Correct. So 72 it formed as Genesis. Was it 72? Yeah, I have to go back. I should have those numbers in front of me, and I apologize. Um, I believe they got started somewhere around 69, 70. Probably 70 is when Genesis was probably starting up. There was a, a, a pre-Genesis band called um, Trojan Rubber Company. Right, and I saw was, another. They, there was another name, Broken Combs. Was that another one? Yeah, that was pre. That was like when they were in like fifth grade. But the, <laughs> the, Trojan, the Trojan Rubber Company was, um, you know, I think their early efforts to try to say, okay, you know, we, we're going to, you know, I play guitar, you play drums, the brothers said, and we're going to try to get some guys. And they played a few gigs. They had a few different singers. Um, I don't think there was really a, it wasn't a quote unquote band per se that was like a going concern. It was just more of they played a few gigs. Um, and so, yeah, maybe around 71, um, Genesis is formed. And so that's going to be Mark Stone, Eddie and Alex. And what I've, my understanding is that um, Mark approached Eddie and Alex and basically said, oh, you have a bass player. And they had a different bass player at the time. They were playing as a trio. This is after um, Trojan Rubber Company. And Mark's like, I'm a better bass player than that. And it turned out that Mark was a better bass player. And they brought him on. And um, by all accounts, you've heard the demos. And Mark was a, a good bass player. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, Andy would have to be to be playing with those guys. Oh, no question. No question. He played the... Um, the plexiglass, uh, excuse me, the Lucite, Dan Armstrong bass. He had the big Ampeg stack. Um, so he had, you know, like a real serious rig, and he was a good player. And so the story goes, too, that whenever um, the Genesis album came out, um, which now you may know better than me because you're the person who has these details um, nailed down in terms of, um, seems like every band in the world. Uh, <laughs> it should be unbelievable. Um, around 72, a Genesis album comes out, and the, the story is that Eddie and Alex were in a record store in Pasadena, and they pull out the album, and they say, oh, well, I guess we need to change the name of the band. And they changed it to Mammoth. So that's that's 72, I think, is when it becomes Mammoth. And that's still a three-piece. And that, what, Eddie Van Halen is 17 then, right? Right, right. They're young. I mean, they're, you yeah. know, this is, this is sort of teenage um, band stuff, and... You know, when you look at, like you mentioned earlier, that there's, you want the detail. When you look at, um, there's been a, a good book. Um, there's a book called Becoming Jimi Hendrix by Stephen Roby, which is um, maybe in some ways kind of a model for what I want to do with this book, is that he's kind of gone through and looked at Hendrix's earliest efforts and looked at it in detail. And, yeah, I mean, you know, obviously we, we care because Eddie Van Halen turns out to be uh, a guitar player that's always going to be in anyone who makes a serious list about rock guitar players, anyone's top five, and that's why we, I think we care. Just like, you know, we care about um, Band of Joy with Robert Plant, not because Band of Joy wrote some great songs, but because Robert Plant was in that band. And John Bonham, I think, was in it too, right? Yeah, exactly. So Roth actually joins in 73. Right. So I believe that he's, what, 19? So yeah, they're all just teenagers, right? Well, how much older is Alex than Eddie? Um, I think two years. Two years? Right. Yeah, I think so it's... they're all basically teenagers when they start. Right. So they become Van Halen... Do you believe the story that David it was David Lee Roth's idea to change the name to Van Halen or? Yeah, I've ne- I mean I've never seen any sort of evidence to, to really seriously dispute that. Um, I've actually seen quotes from Eddie who sort of you know said I was against it at first, um, but then eventually 
it kind of sunk in that, hey, this was kind of a cool thing. Um, yeah, and so the other reason why is that there was a band on the Sunset Strip that was playing around from, I think, from the San Fernando Valley that had some minor record deal called Mammoth. And so my uh, take on it is that they either saw this name on a marquee up on the Strip or was someone kind of, you know, said something to them like, hey, guys, you better dump this name or we're going to sue you. And I don't know that for sure that's what happened, but they best definitely, definitely changed the name because there was another band that was playing around called Mammoth. Okay. And and uh, so do you know much about David Lee Roth's band before Van Halen, Red Ball Jets? Uh, uh, yeah, I probably know more than anybody else on the planet about Red Ball Jets, <laughs> the guys who are in the band. And um, You talked to all the other guys? Well, I talked to uh, three of the other guys in the band. Um, there were two brothers. Uh, the first name of the one of the guys is Miles, and then there was a drummer whose name is Dan, and um, there was another. There was a guitar player named Gary. So those three guys were in the band. There was a fourth uh, guy in the band I have not spoken to, um, but yeah, basically Red Ball Jet was um, Roth's first efforts to try to form a rock band. Um, the story goes that um, Roth had been had seen the Van Halens. I think he talks about this in Crazy from the Heat, his autobiography. He had seen the Van Halens in backyard parties and pestered those guys, and they let him audition. This was before Red Ball Jet, and apparently it was a just total disaster. Um, had him play um, some Johnny Winter, Still Alive and Well, and a couple of other songs, and it just wasn't any good, um, in the, at least in the minds of Eddie and Alex, and they turned him down, and Roth felt like, I'm going to get my revenge, and... You know, I'm going to form my own band. I'm not saying that's the only reason why I formed a band, but I think that was part of what you know he wanted to do. And so, um, I, I talked to these guys in great detail. It, it seems like Red Ball Red Ball Jet was much more of a funky style, maybe more of like a Stonesy loose type of band. So if Mammoth was much more about, we're going to play Captain Beyond songs perfectly, we're going to play Blood Rock songs perfectly. Um, you know, Roth was more interested in getting up there, shaking his ass, and had some guys behind him who could kind of play that sort of faces stone sort of rock and um they did their thing and um you know they they attempted to get club gigs and dr roth was very supportive of this band um that's dave's father who had right. quite a bit of money actually yeah um he was an ophthalmologist and was uh, quite successful and um you know they but they did more things like you know um for you know if you ever watch sort of the way wilson pickett performed great there's some great videos on youtube where the where the horn section would step and stuff like that they tried to do that type of stuff and so it was much more of a you know uh it was very different it wasn't coming from the black sabbath acid rock school of of rock well it sounds like it was uh it sounds like red ball jet then so it's singular huh i always thought it was red ball jets but yeah you know um that's something i can i actually know um i have down somewhere correctly and i've i maybe Yes, uh, saying it wrong too. I think I believe it was Red Ball Jet. Always was not S at the end. Okay, and so it sounds like that band was really just David Lee Roth's vision. Like, like when you talk about the showmanship and everything, right? But right. then he wasn't going to be able to step in the Van Halen and make Eddie Van Halen do <laughs> do dance moves or anything, no. right? So then it became no. a different dynamic. You know, and it's just a tip. It's there's some really great Red Ball Jet stories that I'm going to put in the book that are just, you know, they're funny. I mean, I think. One of the things that I want to bring out about Van Halen is that there was a tremendous amount of humor and there's a great amount of um, a sort of teenage, dazed and confused type of material <laughs> that's really great. I mean, really hilarious and really funny um, about backyard parties and this stuff of like that. And that, yeah, and I, you know, a lot of the Red Ball Jet stories are just really, really, really funny. Um, 
I don't mean I'm not making saying I'm making fun of those guys. But I'm just saying there was just the typical sort of we have big visions and yet things don't quite work out the way we hope, but we have a good time doing it. Um, yeah, and so uh, without a doubt, in talking to those guys in the band, it was Roth had a very determined and definite view on what he wanted to do, and that was part of the reason why Red Ball Jet split. Um, but the best I can kind of piece together, Red Ball Jet split because Roth was starting to make some inroads with the Van Halens and sort of trying to convince them that he should join the band in part because he had um, a PA system. Yeah, I've read that. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think Eddie said that, that that's part of the reason they let him join the band was for his PA. Right, and that's that's um, true from what the best I can tell is that that was one of the things that was going on, that Roth actually was, um, I won't go into too many details, I want to say something for the book, was using it as leverage and sort of wasn't uh, being as generous with the PA as they would want to uh-huh. sort of up the pressure on those guys to let him try to try out again. And um, eventually they succumbed and um, he joined the band. Well, you would think with that as sort of shy as Eddie Van Halen is, it must have been pretty liberating for him to have a guy like David Lee Roth who would just take over and run the show and then he could just step back and concentrate on playing. Right. He you know, must have liked that in aspect in many ways. I, I think that's right. I think the, um, you know, Eddie is a, is a shy person. Um, I've never met him personally, but I think he'll, he would say that himself. Um, yeah, and probably really did not like the spotlight being on him. And that was one thing that Roth definitely embraced, as we know. Um, you know, but one thing I wanted to mention, as long as we're talking about this, is that, uh, you know, Mammoth had a pretty good following. Um, at the time Roth joined, they were a four-piece band with a keyboard player. Um, and they had sort of, the Pasadena in the high school crowd had really embraced them. And so they could bring out, you know, a couple hundred kids in a backyard on a, on a few days' notice. And, and they were, um, you know, kind of the, the best high school band at Pasadena High School. But as we've mentioned and we, we know, very much in the Black Sabbath, um, cr- you know, Cream, Grand Funk, those guys loved, loved, loved Grand Funk. Um, and then some more of the progressive early proto-metal, Captain Beyond, um, Budgie, that type of stuff. Budgie might have come a little bit later. but So when Roth joins, of course, Roth has no familiarity with that material. Okay, you know, Roth yeah, is right. into Motown. Roth is into, um, you know, as I mentioned, you know, they want to do, brown, you know, Roth's band would do things like brown sugar and, and, you know, that type of stuff. And so this was not anything that Roth was at all familiar with and liked, really, to be honest with you. It might, best I can figure out, I don't think he liked that, that material. Yeah, I mean, maybe like the locomotion and, you know, you, you do that by Grand Funk and some kind of wonderful. But, you know, did he want to do, you know, like uh, the other, you know, early Grand Funk stuff like Paranoid and stuff like that? No, he didn't want to do that stuff. Sabbath, no way. Mm-hmm. You know, my brain always goes to, are there any recordings that exist of Red Ball Jet? You know? Yeah. There uh, are? I believe there are. Um, have I been privy to them? No, but I believe they are. I um, I don't think there's much. I mean, I don't think there's, like, soundboard tapes laying around, but I got, you know, in, in talking to people who were in the band, I got the impression there may be tapes kind of still sitting in a shoebox, but um, I don't have them. And what about... Uh, recordings when Eddie was the lead singer before Roth joined. Is there any of that? It could, could be. I don't know. Yeah. That's the type of stuff that it's uh, held pretty tightly, as you might imagine, if it exists. So Mark Stone, he's out in 74 and Michael Anthony is in? Right. So um, the basic timeline here is that when Roth joins the band, they have a keyboard player named Jim. 
Um, and so Roth joins, and now they are now a five-piece, okay? Right, so they are Eddie, Alex, Mark Stone, Jim the keyboard player, and Roth, and that's in 73. And so for some period of time in 73, they were a five-piece. I mean, I think during the summertime might be one way to look at it. There was, I don't think it was a long stretch of time, but they definitely were a five-piece. Um, the keyboard player departs in, I'd say, around the fall, maybe winter, maybe early 74. And so then they're a four-piece. And around that time, that's when they're having trouble with Mark Stone. Um, Mark Stone, by... Um, my listening to him and from what everyone who was around who I've talked to back then, I've talked to something like 200 people. Um, I've interviewed 200 people who were in and around Pasadena at that time. Um, you know, from the people I talked to who paid attention, lots of musicians. I mean, obviously a lot of the guys I interviewed were, were fellow musicians who were in and around playing in bands that would have been competing with mammoth or would have been competing with Van Halen. Um, Mark was a good bass player. Um, and so the issue with Mark is that Mark likes to smoke a lot of hash. And that's not something I came up with by my research. That's something that Eddie has said in interviews before. And so Mark was, um, I think in some ways you could think about him, he was like the Steven Adler of, of Van Halen, right? They sort of laid down the law. Um, he can't remember the songs as well as he should. He's partying too much. And, the, and they um, end up playing a gig at Pasadena High School in um, – middle of 74, maybe like right before school gets out, the end of the school year in 74, um, and they see Michael Anthony's opening band for, um, Michael Anthony's opening band is called Snake, they're opening for Van Halen and um, I think they scope him out maybe give Mark one more chance to clean it up, and Mark doesn't and um, that was it um, the other thing about Mark Stone is Mark Stone didn't sing, and right. so if you think about what Roth's vision is for the band is, you know, he doesn't want to do um, budgie songs in backyards, right? He he wants to see them take on more of a pop, a pop sensibility, and that's really what Roth brings to the band. And so I think what Roth hears when he hears Anthony sing, of course, is that Anthony can do that Motown background vocals uh, at a drop of the hat. So um, was Michael Anthony as good of a bass player as Mark Stone? I mean, that's um, you know, I think I think it's ultimately um, easy to say that it wasn't. I don't think it was Michael Anthony's bass playing that blew those guys away. I think it was more of the singing. I'm not trying to knock Michael Anthony, but I'm just saying that Mark Stone wasn't reliable from what I understand. Here's a guy who's a good, solid bass player, and plus he can sing his ass off. And right. so, to me, that's the, that's the big difference. So, Eddie doesn't like to sing. Um, you know, he will, but he doesn't like to. Um, you got Roth, who says, you know, I want to bring a little sweetness to this. This is a guy who grew up listening to Beach Boys records. And so, yeah, you, you bring Anthony to the band. And so, they basically in like seventy four, seventy five, they're doing mostly covers, and but obviously that's just utilitarian, just to to make a, to make money and to to land gigs. And basically, they're building that rock, that Sunset Strip rock scene in that time period, right? Right. You know, I, w I would point to um, the. We may listen to these tracks later, but I point to that early 74 demo that was done with Mark Stone, uh, Simple Rhyme, Take Your Whiskey Home. Right. That was done at Cherokee Studios in is it Chatsworth, California. And um, I've talked to the guy who financed that demo and was actually working with the band at that time. You know, there's this myth around Van Halen that they didn't have any quote-unquote managers at all. And, 
you know, well, you know, did they have a Marshall Burrell style big time rock manager in '74? No, they didn't have that. But they had, you know, they had guys who were, you know, helping to get them gigs and who would have been had a, a commercial relationship with them or a business relationship with them. And so this guy put up the money for that, and that that was actually meant to get them a record deal, um, which obviously didn't happen. But that was the idea. So they record a few originals. But did they? You know, were they obviously making their money on cover songs? Yeah, they were still playing backyard parties, and they were trying at that point to trying to get into Gazaris. But the the funny thing about um, when you if you hear some of the early shows where they were doing mostly covers, most of the songs they did would have been probably completely unfamiliar to the audience. Where where when you think of a cover band who are trying to make money make money as a cover band, they would do songs the audience would know, and to go up there and do completely obscure songs the way they did is just interesting to me. And yeah, it's pretty weird to hear David Lee Roth trying to sing some of those songs that they do. Right. It's right. pretty so which awkward. ones are you thinking of? Well, like you were talking about Budgie, you know, yeah. and most most people know Budgie now because of Metallica, and here you have Van Halen 10 plus years earlier, they're doing right. Budgie songs on the strip where Metallica started out. It's right. pretty interesting. Right. It's Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And, you know, I think that's the thing, too, that, um, you know, Mark Stone was a peer for Eddie in that sense, right? Mark was into Sabbath. He was into Deep Purple, you know, the first Deep Purple album. Um, He was into all of that stuff that, yeah, kind of culminates with Budgie. And so, to me, you know, that's an interesting period of time. So, that's around 74, that cover of that Budgie song was done, maybe 75, I think probably 74. You know, so you have this transition where Ross in the band... um, and yet Eddie still has, has this sensibility that, you know, we could be this doomy, heavy, progressive metal band in some ways, I think. Like, I don't know how you'd want to describe Budgie, but that to me they were a little bit more sophisticated than some of the other stuff that was out there. Um, but Roth is, you know, that's not Roth's vision um, per se. Right. So, I mean, obviously, probably David Lee Roth wanted to get away from the covers as fast as they possibly could, I'm thinking. And I mean, so the period where they were a cover band was really just was pretty short, right? And they're well, always working their originals in there. Well, you know, they were playing covers up until about the summer of '76. Now, were they playing exclusively covers? No, but um, really, in the summer of '76, there's that gig that's done at Golden West Ballroom that um, is supposedly they're all originals first gig. Um, in, but are you correct that they were trying to build a repertoire of original songs? Yeah. Um, but I you know, also would say that at backyard parties and stuff, they were probably doing tons of covers when they were playing them. They were playing backyard parties into 1976. I mean, I think that's how they made a lot of their money gigging, which is, of course, you know, Gazaris didn't pay anything at all, really paid almost nothing. And so what do you do on the weekend when you're not playing Gazaris? You play some backyard party where you get paid 250 bucks to go out there and play for an hour, let's face it, an hour. Because you play so loud that the cops come and break it up, right? And then you're you're sad. So it's like you yeah. know, it's the easiest way to make money in the world. Um, they, I think, they all those guys in that band knew that you weren't going to get anywhere long term playing covers. Michael Anthony, um, there's an interview with him in the L.A. Times done in '77 or so after they had been signed to Warner Brothers, and he said, you know, there there were actually you know very well paying cl- clubs. There was a place called Big Daddy's which I'm not sure off the top of my head where it was in L.A., but it was kind of like the, the premier cover band club. And so if you got into Big Daddy's, I mean, that was you were making a lot of money. It was this huge club. You know, People would go out for drinks and dinner, and they would go hear you know, a band do Steely Dan covers and do all the other stuff that was popular then. So you could become, in L.A., a successful cover band and make a living, but you were never going to get signed, and you were never going to get anywhere at all with that. And they knew that, that, right. you were just, that you would just become like a working musician who does weddings then, basically. 
when Van Halen start playing all the clubs on the strip, are they kind of the first hard rock band that's doing that? And then all those bands like the boys and Wolfgang and everything comes after them or are they happening at the same time? Yeah. It seems to be, you know, Gazzari's for, you know, I talked to um, a number of musicians, maybe 12 who played alongside Van Halen. So these would be just guys who were, you know, now in their early early sixties or late fifties who were around at that time. And, you know, there was all sorts of sort of weird bands playing. There'd be, you know, lots of, Glitter rock, some um, almost like teeny bopper pop. I don't know how to describe all the different types of bands, and I don't have the uh, access to the music for those bands. I'm just sort of hearing what people are kind of describing. And so, you know, one of the problems that Van Halen had was that they were, again, coming out of that hard rock sensibility, and so Eddie had a tendency to play too loud. Um, but there was a band called Sway that if you see some pictures of Kazari's um, marquee that are kicking around, they were sort of a Stonesy type of band. So it wasn't that... Um, I think that Van Halen was the first hard rock band on the strip per se. I mean, but they were certainly the the band that kind of defines, I think, as we both know, the what the hard rock sound of the of LA becomes, if that makes sense. I mean, Gazarius was a place that seemed to me was pretty pretty diverse. If you could basically if you could bring in customers who would drink, you could play at Gazaris. You know, that was if you had enough songs and you were you were a good band, you could play. Right. Well, I mean, you've got George Lynch and the boys and you've right. got Randy Rose and Quiet Riot. I think Quiet Riot maybe is '75. They started right. The, those those bands to me, the boys too. Like the um, it's '76, '70. So Van Halen starts at Gazzari's in '74, and I'm not quite sure when the boys gets on the strip, um, but certainly by '76 they are. And when I talked to Michael White, you know, he said we were much more like Judas Priest. You know, that's weird. We are we sounded more like early Judas Priest than anything else, and I think that's. There's some demos kicking around with Michael White, and so that's kind of the way they um, they were. But they were also um, kind of fashion conscious as well. The, the the boys, you know, kind of outrageous costumes and stuff like that. I'm not saying they were completely glammed out, but it wasn't you know like three guys in jeans standing up there playing rock. It was um, you know they they had a sort of a uh, an aesthetic about them as well. Um, and when I talked to Jackie Fox, who's the bass player of the Runaways, you know she she was with Gene Simmons the night that um, the boys and Van Halen played up on the strip um, and uh, at, at Starwood. And then she had seen them. And she was actually a very big fan of, uh, of the boys. And the, the funny thing is that um, Jackie Fox told me was that she's like, yeah, I actually was talking up boys to Jean. Um, I know I liked Van, you know, she liked Van Halen, but she was just like the boys better. Well, yeah, the, the story has been that Jean went there to see the boys and just happened to see Van Halen. And I've seen that Rodney Bingenheimer took him there. I've seen he went in his book. He says he went there with BB Buell, and so you're also saying he was with Jackie Fox there. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. I mean, I sort of one of these things where everyone wants to tag along. Yeah. Um, you know that that part of the book I have not written yet, and so um, I, I haven't sequenced together and sort of threaded together all the stories to try to make sense of it. Um, I think he was with BB Buell. Um, you know, when I talked to Jackie, um, you know, her sense is that you know. I didn't become famous, and so I sort of get left out of the, the story. I mean, she wasn't saying that to be bitter, but she was just saying yeah. that, look, I was there, but nobody, you know, Jackie Fox is sort of a non-factor in the world of uh, of hard rock today, so, you know, they don't, she doesn't get mentioned. But, yeah, she was there, and she, um, you know, she knew those guys for um, for quite a while, like some months before that, she had met Gene and Paul. Um, she told me a very funny story about how they were shooting a, a, a TV show in L.A., and she and her girlfriend found out about it, uh, it was on the soundstage, and they snuck in, and uh, 
she went <laughs> backstage to this, you know, for the show, whatever television show they were shooting, and she sees the, um, Gene and Paul's real names on the doors of the um, dressing rooms. So instead of being Gene Simmons, it's Gene's real name. Instead of it being Paul Stanley, it's Paul's real name. And she's like, oh, these guys are just Jewish guys. They're just like you know, regular. You know, I'm Jewish. They're Jewish. We're just regular. Yeah. And so she said she felt it, totally disarmed by that and just kind of came in and was talking to them and became friendly with those guys. Um it's just, you know, maybe right before she joined the Runaways or, or when she just had gotten in the Runaways. I'm not sure of the timeline, but, um, yeah, she was around. She was around there, too. It's funny, the, the common denominator of all of this that we're talking about, uh, the Runaways kiss the boys, Kim Fowley. Kim Fowley right. managed the boys, put together the Runaways, and he had just worked with Kiss on Destroyer in, what, 75? Right. right. So, and, you know, he was a big... I guess he was a big driving force on the Sunset Strip too in that mid seventies hard rock scene. Yeah, like he had the Hollywood stars there at the time, and um, and later on he had a band called Venus and the Razorblade, right? With um, Stephen T. Um, yeah, you know I've I've spoken to Kim Fowley in an interview with Kim Fowley, and he is a force of nature. Um, yeah. <laughs> very smart guy. Um, you know I believe most of the stories I hear about Kim Fowley. I'll leave it at that. I'm not going to say anything else. But he is a definitely a very very intelligent person. Um, great, very articulate speaker. Um, and so when people talk about him as sort of a Svengali, I, I sort of, I can see that, that he is, he's just, you know, if I was starting a business and I wanted someone to, um, help me build a, uh, uh, get venture capital, I think Kim Valley would be an excellent candidate, if you know what I mean. I mean, he knows how to talk. Um, and he's just a very persuasive person. And so, um, yeah, he had his hands in a lot of those things. He was, um, Working with the boys, that's true. Um, he also was somebody who understood that the money came from writing songs. And so Hollywood stars, as you know, right, they have that song. Um, King, King of the, the Night- Nighttime World, yeah. Right. And that then ends up being um, a Kim Fowley writing credit on Destroyer. And so what we see when we get to 1977 and the Van Halen is working on the Warner Brothers demo, uh, Kim Fowley has um, worked his magic on David Lee Roth. He has helped them in a bit, um, get some attention from Warner brothers. And, uh, you know, in, in theory, what Fowley wants is he wants them to record a song called young and wild, which is on the Warner brothers demo that was done by the behest of Ted Templeman, um, and have that be on the first record. That's the, that's the goal, right? So then Kim Fowley has a writing credit on Van Halen one. So Kim Fowley wrote young and wild or co-wrote it. Yeah. Yeah. I believe he would have had a co-write on it. Well, so you have to think, did Kim Foley have anything to do with Gene Simmons being there that night to see the boys, since Kim Foley was working with the boys, Andy had worked with Gene Simmons. And then, so the story is that Gene Simmons saw Van Halen open for the boys and then forgot about the boys. But is that true? <laughs> yeah. Um, if I'm remembering correctly, right, that 
the way Michael White tells the story, and again, I haven't threaded all these stories together for the book yet, so it's, um, apologize if it's not as clear as it may be in the book, is that um, Jackie Fox and a number of other people were telling Gene about some of the bands on the strip, right? Gene has this vision that he wants to start a record label or Gene wants to be managing bands. Of course, at this, mo this moment in time, as we all know, in 1976, Kiss is the biggest rock band in the world. So when Gene's in L.A. and they're on a break, he ends up uh, being told about a band called The Boys. And so he goes to Gazzari's, and this is in October of 76, and sees The Boys. Um, they end up doing, maybe doing a Kiss song or something, it, you know, in this set, and there's a lot of kids at Gazzari's. Um, and Gene's impressed, and so he talks to Michael White, and Michael White says, well, we're playing next week at Starwood. Um, come see us. And so that's just down the, down the uh, you know, around the corner, basically. I don't think it's, it's not down the street. It's around the corner um, in Hollywood. And so Gene comes back a few days later and ends up basically not liking the boys, but really being impressed with, with Van Halen. I, I think Michael White told me that they just over-rehearsed that, um, he said they just we just over you know it's sort of like overtraining for a marathon. He said we just didn't have a good night. He said we were better at Gazzari's, and then you know Gene's there and Paul Stanley is there, and this is sort of like the big moment. And he said we just had over prepped and we ended up falling flat. Um, and Van Halen was was great apparently, and and Gene was you know super excited about Van Halen. So Paul Stanley was there too. That's my understanding. Yeah, um, that he was there too. Yeah. And you know, uh, with with the year thing, uh, Gene says in his book it was seventy seven that he went there yeah I, I don't think that's right i think yeah. it's far be it for me to disagree with gene simmons let me put that on <laughs> uh, but yeah it's uh, 76 it was the fall of 76 and i've also seen confusion about whether or not it was the boys or exciter because around 77 i think is when they switch singers right and basically they changed the name but it's the same band just with a different singer right it was the boys right yeah uh, because you talked to michael white about it yeah, and I talked to the boys' as bass player as well. It was the, it was definitely the boys. It was um you know it was a big um, for Michael and the bass player and the and the boys. Of course, that was kind of a big you know a big blow. George and um, Mick Brown eventually make it big at Dokken, but it was um, you know I, I don't think they sit there and you know dwell on it every single day. But obviously, that's when you're that close to being signed by uh, Gene Simmons. That's a tough blow to take when it doesn't happen. Right. Even though Gene really didn't make anything happen for Van Halen either, but uh, so you know. Who, you know, why would he have made anything happen for the boys necessarily? But <laughs> yeah, it, it's interesting, right? So it's April. We're recording this. It's April 2014. Kiss is getting ready to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and I, you know, Gene, uh, Gene, and uh, Sammy Hagar are my two uh, two favorites for uh, stirring up Van Halen stories. They definitely know when they have something they want to sell that they can they can kind of pull up the Van Halen stories and and get people talking. Um, yeah, yeah, you know, so. Um, my understanding is that Gene hears those guys and says, let's go into the studio right away. They go into a studio in L.A. and they record the basic tracks for what's called the quote unquote the Gene Simmons demo. Um, you know, for lack of a better term, I believe it's 11 tracks and there's great qualities, uh, bootlegs of it that go around somebody. I don't know how that got out um, in the last five to seven years. Yeah, uh, it's, uh, it's excellent. Excellent oh, it's, quality. It's, yeah, yeah I, I have no doubt that it's basically from a tape that was carefully safeguarded for years. I was like sitting in a shoebox and, you know, like type of perfectly cared for tape.
And then what um, Gene decides to do is he wants to get um, Bill Alcoin to get on board. So he flies these guys to New York to perform in front of Bill Alcoin. Um, and um, from what I understand, you know, Eddie and Alex, I don't know this for 100% certainty, but I'm guessing they had never been back to New York since they, or through that part of the country since they transited through as little kids. Um, you know, for best I know, that could have been the first airplane flight they had taken um, since then. And so kind of, I can imagine it's kind of a huge um, experience for them. They go, you're with Gene Simmons, he's buying you clothes, he's talking you up. Um, and they got over to, I think it's SIR Studios. They set up on rented equipment and they played in front of a coin. And um, it just wasn't very good from what everyone says. And I think also is that this is where um, I think for all intents and purposes, David Lee Roth made his mark as a vocalist. And Van Halen won and the albums that followed certainly show that he is, you know, had a, uh, a distinctive voice and he made his mark. Um, you know, but I, I also would say that a lot of people who saw Van Halen during that early time period, when you looked at the band, if there was one weak link, it was Roth. And I hope that that makes sense. It's when you've got Eddie and Alex, who are tremendous players, and Michael Anthony, who's this great singer and this good bass player. You know, you say, well, if you're looking for a reason not to like the band, it, it would have been Roth's vocals that were, you know, not up to whatever. He, he You know, look, he's not a, um, he's not Robert Plant, right? He's not Ian Gillen. He's not that type of sort of um, vocalist, I think, that sort of, you know, can um, set himself apart in that sort of way at that moment in time. And they were probably nervous. I mean, I'm sure I'd, I would have been nervous. Yeah. Well, and another thing about Roth is if you compare some of the early some of the early demos of some of the songs that ended up on the first couple of albums, uh, he really tightened up his lyrics and the melodies once mm -hmm. it came time to make the records. Mm -hmm. Like, there's a lot more words in some of the songs, and just he he you could tell he took the lyrics more seriously once they had a record deal. I think that, I think that's right. And I also think that, you know, there's, I think it's easy to over credit producers and it's also easy to under credit producers, but I think Ted Templeman deserves a lot of credit for making Van Halen one sound the way it did. I mean, the, the, the Warner brothers demo, which was done in 1977, which is available on YouTube and we can listen to it. And there's bootleg around of it that are probably a few generations down from the master, but sound very good. Um, there's no question that Van Halen is a great band. Um, you know, you could, that, that demo itself is evidence to me that was recorded largely live. Uh, I got that from Don Landy himself. I spoke to Don Landy, and I've spoken to Ted Templeman as well. Um, you know, that's the real deal. Uh, but on the other hand, I would point out that um, when you listen to Roth on the first Van Halen album, it's pretty clear that, that Templeman had certain licks and riffs that he liked Roth doing the screams. He knew how to sort of cut and paste Roth in the right way. In mm -hmm. other words, Roth's, Roth's vocals are not recorded on Van Halen 1 live. And I've even you know seen comments that right from uh, Alex Van Halen later years that it was, in other words, it wasn't like they put a mic in front of Roth and he sang Running With The Devil Straight Through. Right. Don't get me wrong, I'm not knocking Roth. I'm just saying that Templeman, like a good producer, said, that's, th yeah, do that lick, do this, and sort of coached him through, I think, and made that, helped make that style that Roth developed come through in the right sort of way. I mean, when Ross sings in the demo, I think his vocals are, are largely good, but I think if you listen between the 77 demo and then the final Warner Brothers um, Van Halen 1 album, I mean, I think it's clear that there's, you know, it's a great performance by Roth all over, the, all over that album. It's a tremendous performance. Well, I think, 
I really like the Gene Simmons demo. I really like I like the the clean production. I think it's the best production work Gene Simmons ever did. <laughs> like if you listen to any of the other records he produced, like in the '80s and stuff, I don't think any of it sounded as good as his Van Halen demos sounded. The drum sound is really cool on those, I think. And I mean, and who knows how seriously they even took the mix? I don't know, but um, I really enjoy the Gene Simmons demos. But when you listen to Running with the Devil, it just it's not even close to as good as on the first record. Right. I think it's mostly because of the vocals. So like and you're saying, too, yeah, right? the tempo yeah. is a little bit like um, Templeman slowed it down. Like, yeah, and, and again, that's what I'm trying. I mean about trying to give Templeman the proper credit. Van Halen was a great band, but Templeman was a master of sort of saying, okay, look, Eddie Van Halen's guitar sound is incredible. That's going to dominate, and then what else is going to go along with it? Ross screams and vocals, and we're going to tweak these songs a little bit. I mean, he's he's a genius. Well, and it's what's to me the for me the most impressive song on the first Van Halen album is "Ain't Talking About Love," and that's one of the only songs on the record that wasn't on any of the early demos. Like, when right. did that song even happen in there? Right. So that was written in between the demo and the recording of the album. Now okay. I have the timeline nailed down. I think as well as anybody's going to have the timeline of 1977 nailed down. So I'm going to hold that back for the book. Um, but that was recorded after the demo um, was done. Um, excuse me, written after the demo was done. Um, Eddie. And Janie's Crying, was that written to, after the demo too? Yeah, I think that one was one they said they had written in the studio. Um, okay. You know, that's a, another one that did, that got written later. But as you know, they had a very, very deep pool of songs. And I think that's part of what, you know, what convinced Templeman too. I mean, I think, you know, the story goes kind of, he sees them at the Starwood in 77 and, and says, I want to sign you. And then they, they sign or they sign some sort of preliminary deal. I don't think the deal wasn't finalized instantly. Um, as you might imagine, with Warner Brothers lawyers involved. Again, this is part of this myth that we were talking about when we the pre-interview. Is one of the things that was really frustrating about for me as historian is that you know I know how corporations work a little bit, and I know that you don't sign a uh, an artist like on a you know a, on top of a a wet bar at the Starwood and go your deal is done. And that's sort of where the myth has been done. You know, yeah. so there was some sort of whatever it was, preliminary offer, and then the demo was recorded, um, and then finally the deal was finalized. But I think once they heard that demo, meaning Templeman and you know uh, all the other guys um, who worked at uh, Mo Austin, who worked at Warner Brothers, I'm sure they were like, these guys, look at this, they got 25 songs, at least 15 or 20 of those are, I'd say, very good songs or great songs. You know, there might be a few clunkers in there, but they ended up cannibalizing those too. And so I think that was, you know, then there was no question, right? It's like, you know, we, we've got something here to do. We can do something with this band. What we end up with is that I think by the time Van Halen is going to be signed, um, you know, 
they're seen as, in some ways, their style is going to seen as sort of a little bit out of step with what's coming. Of course, as you know, um, New Wave and Power Pop are going to become the sort of the sound that dominates 1979, 1980 on the radio and disco and stuff like that. So, um, you know, I, I don't remember what, I remember what the original question was, but, you know, but when Van Halen 1 comes out, Cream Magazine talks about, um, isn't it sad when dinosaurs go extinct? Do you read their first album review? And sort of, I think that sort of captures the hip, sort of smug view of heavy rock at the time. That heavy metal's dying. That you know, look, Ted Nugent, he's he's played out. It's it's over, right? It's just over. Um, AOR is you know maybe the future of rock, and this idea of sort of getting up there doing these fifteen minute heavy jams, um, that's done. You know, we're not going to have twenty nine minutes of days and confused. But of course, what Templeton did with Van Halen is that he tightened it up. He got rid of all of the all of the um, you know. There's not going to be any any jamming in other words they're going to be two three minute pop songs um and they're going to have that guitar pyrotechnics and the screams that sort of make heavy metal heavy metal in my estimation but they're really it's going to be hard rock and it's but it's going to be drawing from that early 70s tradition of heavy metal and really van halen didn't sound like anything else when it came out I mean, I, yeah I, I don't think they did i mean no. i i really don't think they they did at all um you know for them to to break, I, I talked to a guy named Terry Kilgore, who you may know, who um, played on the same scene with Eddie as a kid. They were very close as kids, and I mean close. I mean they were they were very good friends. Um, Terry ended up um, eventually playing with David Lee Roth and doing some other stuff, writing songs with Rat. But um, if you talk to anybody who was around in Pasadena in the early '70s, they will say Terry Kilgore was the peer of Eddie Van Halen. And I know that's hard for people to understand, but. Um, Terry Kilgore was was the the shit, uh, you know, like Eddie was. I mean, in other words, those were the two hotshot guitar, guitar players in um, the San, San Gabriel Valley. And so, you know, when I talked to Terry, he talked about the fact that, you know, when they, they got signed, Van Halen, meaning he was thinking to himself that, well, that's too bad. What's actually happened here is, um, you know, th th that Warner Brothers just wants to have a tax write-off. That Terry's take was, you know, that punk rock is the new future and... You know, they just want to sign this band, print 25,000 copies of the record or whatever, and then didn't have a tax write-off. Um, you know, that was Terry's take on it. And obviously, that ended up being not right at all because I think Warner Brothers supported the album very well. But that was sort of the, you know, again, the sense was that Van Halen was in some ways a band that probably should have been signed two years earlier. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Well, and that's when Gene Simmons tried to sign them, basically. And... uh you know, Gene Simmons says in his book, he implies that he had a contract with the band that he tore up when they told him Warner Brothers was interested. But right. he also talks about how he tried to get the other guys in Kiss interested in the band, and, and they weren't interested in it. And I, so it almost made me think, instead of having his own record label, maybe at that time he was thinking Kiss would have their own record label, you know? Yeah, I, yeah. That's um, there's been a few interviews with Alcoin kicking around. I have a couple um, MP3s of interviews he did. Um you know, Al Coyne says that the big mistake he made um, was that when Gene was telling him how good Van Halen was in L.A., like Gene called whatever Gene, I called Al Coyne, obviously, from L.A. and said, I want to bring these guys out. Al Coyne said the mistake he made was that he said he was just too into his sort of, you know, having everything brought to him at that point. He should have gotten on a plane and flown to L.A. and seen them in the Starwood or seen them at a party or whatever. Right. He said because when they got to New York – he said part of what ends up happening is that you take these guys out of L.A. You know, Roth had traveled quite a bit as a kid. Um, you know, he had a sort of a more privileged lifestyle. But those other guys presumably had not flown on a 747 in New York or whatever. You know, and you, you, you kind of 
put the spotlight on them that intensely, you're just not going to get the real band. And so, you know, he hears them and he's like, eh, you know, they're okay. Um, the singer's not that great. And uh, plus, I want to sign Piper with Billy Squire, which, by the way, I, is a band I very much like. Actually, I love those uh, two Piper yeah, albums. I love right? Piper too. Yeah. 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 Um, and so, you know, I think that's ended up what ended up happening too. And that's that's interesting to think about what would have happened if um, they had actually signed in '76. But um, you know, the songs were there. Um, if you listen to the Simmons demo, I mean, I think there's there's certainly enough there to imagine they could have taken that as a starting point to write an album in definitely you know, a few you know whatever months earlier or whatever they did with the the um the warner brothers and also uh quiet riot were like this close i think to being signed by casablanca right around that time too and it's just like the the record labels just missed the boat on the sunset strip scene and then by the time van halen broke none of those bands were around anymore they probably all would have gotten record deals a couple years earlier when van halen right. broke they probably would have signed up the boys right. and wolfgang like you, you did you talk to anyone from that band a la carte uh yeah i talked to the drummer uh guy's name is brian i also talked to um the uh steve plunkett and randy rand who both ended up in autograph who were in in wolfgang and they played you know all over san fernando valley and they were you know in 76 um when van halen first hit the starwood i mean wolfgang was kind of the peer of van halen at that time too they were um I'd have to I'd have to kind of refresh my memory what they sound like. I've never heard any of their songs, but I've never uh, heard heard them either. Are there are there recordings out there of Wolf? Probably. I mean, you you could uh, hit up Randy. Randy's a nice guy. Um, uh-huh. He might. He was also in a band called um, Masters of the Airwaves. Yeah, 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 yeah. They which had is a great record. Album. Yeah, that's a pretty heavy, heavy record. Like seventy four. Yeah, but Masters of the Airwaves were on the strip. Or, no, 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 no. I'm just saying that that was where that was the band. Yeah, he was in that band. Yeah. Right before, um, they may have been they may have been an LA band. I don't know that for sure. But he was in uh, Masters of the Airways. Randy Rand, and then he goes into into um, into Wolfgang. And again, I'd urge you know as a historian, and I know you are a, a music historian um, extraordinaire. I mean, go back. I'm saying to people, go back and get Cream Magazine. Oh, get yourself a Cream Magazine from 1979 off eBay. You know, like look for them. They're up. They'll be like 4.99. Get one. Open it up and read. That was what, to me, I think was the kind of the mainstream music industry. Maybe not exactly, but to me, you know, there's very much this uh, sensibility that New Wave and punk are where it's at. Blondie is on the cover. And, of course, Van Halen's on the cover eventually and stuff. They eventually come around to, like, Van Halen by 1980 or so. But, like, 79, 78, I mean, it's like hard rock, heavy metal. Are you kidding me? What, are you going to turn on listen to Iron Butterfly? You know, (laughs) I mean, that's that's really – like I said earlier, I mean, that's the, the attitude. Um, there's even an article in Circus Magazine from 78, is heavy metal dying or is heavy metal dead? Interviewing Ted Nugent and all these different people. There was a sense it's it's over. You know, soft rock, the Eagles were really, really big earlier in the 70s. You know, the soft L.A. sound with Linda Rodstadt. Um, you know, and there's then disco comes on really, really strong, and then there's new wave. And so there's a sense that, yeah, you know what? It's like, it's like, I don't know, like doo wop or something like that. Like, it's going to die out. Like, yeah, doo wop had its moment in the whatever, the 50s and 60s, but in 1970s, anyone listening to doo wop on the radio? No. And so people think heavy metal's over. Um, so then I guess Van Halen are the band that wrote it out through that period. And then into the 80s, you get these guys all resurfacing. You know, George Lynch resurfaces in Dockin, Quiet Riot with a new lineup, Break Big. Rat, right. who were rat, were around on the Sunset Strip right. at the same time. Right. They break, you know, all those guys right. resurface. Then once they ride through that right. three or four, and, five year period. And I want to just yeah, um, observe here. I got a chance to talk to Marshall Burl, who was Van Halen's first manager. Um, and he was involved year. with Rat, right? Right. And so 
right, in, in talking to him, you know, my take was that he saw Rat and he's like, history's repeating itself. You know, I might have gotten fired by Van Halen. He got let go for Noah Monk in around 78, 79 for reasons that aren't totally clear to me. And I'll just leave it at that. I, I don't know exactly what, I honestly don't know exactly what happened, but there was a, a split between Van Halen and uh, Marshall Burrell. And, you know, he's around on the strip and whatever. And he sees Rat in 83, probably 82. And he's like, oh, here we go again. You know, it was exact. And really, I mean, it was the exact same thing. And he, um, saw it and shepherded those guys to big success, obviously. And yeah, and they were when they were Mickey Rat, they were playing the same clubs as Van Halen before Van Halen broke. So, and then they just wrote it out, I guess. Yeah, um, you know, I, I've never actually, you know, here's something I want to kind of put on the record is that yeah, I, I've heard, I've seen Don Dockin and I've seen um, uh, Stephen Piercy talk about how they played alongside Van Halen. I don't actually think that's true. Um, okay. Could it be? Um, I can't say for 100% certainly it's not true, but um, I, I think if you look um, at this band called Airborne, which I believe was a pre-Dockin band. That was band, Don Dockin's band, yeah. Right, and Bobby Blotzer was in that band from Rat, and I've, I've talked to him. They sort of, you know, when after Van Halen launches in 78, that's kind of when those bands start. So it's basically right after Van Halen. In other words, Van Halen is done playing the strip by 77. They've even kind of... Um, tacked it back in 77 because they have the Warner Brothers record deal. So they're still playing around, but they're not playing as much as they had been in 76. Um, but um, so my take is more like 78, 79 when those bands come along. But you're right in terms of keeping the spirit alive in some sort of ways. Yeah, those guys were trying to, you know, whatever they were trying to do in terms of that. There's another guy, um, by the way, Greg Leon, who you may know. Yeah, he was in Dokken. And um, has he has a solo record that came out, um, which... Uh, I can't remember the name of it, but it's um, it came out in the early '80s. It was released by a, a local LA record uh, right, company. Right, Invasion. Right? right, exactly. Thank you, thank you. And you know, to me, like that again, he was another one of those guys who sort of kept the fires burning. And, and uh, I think with different management, Greg Leon could have maybe um, made it big. But he he was actually a guy who was around and friendly with Eddie, friend, friendly with Randy. And like you said, there's all this whole class of musicians who sort of. Um, just you know, put their head down and figure a way to survive until the the breakthrough comes, which of course no one could foresee. But when it right, comes in right. '83, well, yeah, uh, Greg Leon. I was just thinking about uh, on on that record you're talking about. I think there's a song that it's the music from Paris is Burning with a different melody and lyrics. And there's also um, there's also a Motley Crue song um, that's very similar. Okay. Eat severe action. If there's a, if you listen to the Greg Leon Invasion album. Um, you know, and, and Greg sort of had a few things to say about that. I'll leave it at that. But yeah, there's there's a similarity between the Motley Crue song, um, I believe, is "Piece of Your Action," and the similarity between Greg Leon's song. And um, you know, you can you can kind of put your own stuff together. I, I don't think I, I didn't get the impression that Greg Leon had, had decided he was going to copy a Motley Crue song. I'll put it there. Well, the it is the music from Paris is Burning, though, oh, yeah, which yeah, is yeah, interesting yeah. because that song started with Exciter, not even with Dokken. Because right. if you listen to that Exciter, the Exciter song Paris is Burning is basically all, the the music just with different lyrics. Right, right, right. And so that's a joy. So that's then they would have, so then <laughs> you would think George Lynch brought the song to Dokken, but then you have Greg Leon who was there before George Lynch, I guess. Uh, it's really weird. I don't understand how, <laughs> did he have something to do with writing that song or not? I it's, I, I'm confused. I don't know. I don't know. Uh... <laughs>
don't know. I just uh, that was sort of uh, an aside in our, our conversation we had, which was much more about Van Halen, obviously. But right. um, yeah, there's there's a couple of tracks in there that um, that's another one of those those you know people talk about a lost classic. To me, that's sort of a lost classic. That's there's some good songs on that record, and Greg Leon's a very good guitar player, and a, uh, I should say a very nice guy. So yeah, I get what you're saying that by '78, Van Halen were gone from the strip pretty much. And oh yeah. Right, they're they're out. You know, they they toured with with Sabbath, and then they're caught up in the in the big Warner Brothers album tour cycle. So right. they're 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 done. I mean, I think there's, um, if I remember correctly, there's some sort of talk about them trying to play a, like a secret club gig at the end of '78, like after they returned to L.A. after their world tour. But that didn't that never happened. Right, and so I think the yeah the earliest Mickey Rat I have is I think '78, and then there was that Dawkins single, which was either '78 or '79. Yeah, so, yeah, I see what you. So they weren't. They weren't peers of Van Halen. They were like right after Van Halen. Right, but when when people want to talk about this, right, they want to talk about. I mean, look, Stephen Piercy, from the best I understand, knew Eddie Van Halen, like was trading musical instruments with him and stuff. I'm not saying he wasn't around, but I don't, right. I don't think that like it was like Van tonight at the at the whiskey, Van Halen and Mickey Rat and and right. you know Doc. No, and it's not the no, way it, was it wasn't at all. Yeah. And I think Mickey Rat started in San Francisco and then moved to L.A. Yeah, or San Diego maybe. Is that right? One, yeah, one or the other, yeah. So, um. Oh, one one other thing I wanted to talk to you about is, uh, do you in your book are you going to go into like the history of tapping and how, like you were talking about how there's an yeah. argument, there's an argument about what whether George or Eddie started it, right? And I know right. I was reading about it, like um, Steve Hackett was doing it in Genesis, right? And the guy from George Lynch says that him and Eddie both saw the guy from Canned Heat do it, right? Um. um. At right. the Starwood or whatever, and he was doing it like in '73 on Canned Heat and stuff. Right. Yeah, I have a whole I have a whole take on that. Um, and uh, yeah, that the the, um, the story is probably different than the story that Eddie Van Halen has told. I'll say that. I I, I think, with all respect to Eddie, I think that he was a person who um, was thrust upon with this sudden sense that he's the greatest guitar player anyone had ever seen, and I think. Um, you know, when you're sort of faced with that sort of spotlight, you may not want to, um, how would I put it, that you you, you want to um, not undercut yourself. And I'm not saying that Eddie was um, a person who was selfishly trying to, to uh, grab the whole spotlight for himself and kind of write other people out of the story. But I think there's this, this sort of when people are like, yeah, you're the greatest, you're the greatest. Are you going to follow that up by going, oh, actually, you know, I had other influences uh, that... <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I you know. Here's the thing: if you look and listen to what Eddie says, and God knows that I uh, I am a fan of Eddie Van Halen. Um, you know, he, he sort of talks about Clapton as his influence, and uh, you know, I think there's a lot of guitar players that came between Eric Clapton and uh, Eddie Van Halen that Eddie Van Halen listened to. Yeah. Um, am I saying that he's you know he's intentionally trying to slight those guys? No, but I think it's you sort of have a shorthand where you want to just sort of say this and then move on. Um, I, you know, I I will tell you that there's an interesting story around tapping. Can I prove it that it's exactly the way it happened? No, obviously not. Um, it's, you know, when you write this type of book, you interview people, um, you do your best to try to put the pieces together. And um, I'm a PhD historian, so I take this stuff seriously. I'll do my best. But um, I think there's probably more detail there about tapping than Eddie wants to let on. Yeah, well, it almost seems like the conventional wisdom is almost that Eddie Van Halen invented it, unless you unless you dig deeper and realize that no he did he obviously didn't invent it but he he didn't even bring it to rock and roll no it, it was happening like previous to rock and roll right. even i think but right um, 
So does so. George Lynch? Do you think George Lynch feels that Eddie Van Halen got too much of the credit, or you know, I I I, I think. I'm not going to try to put words in George's mouth. I mean, George is around. Obviously, you could try to get him on the show and have him talk oh, about I that. that. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, my my take on it is that George sees Eddie as a great player, maybe the greatest of his generation. I, I never, when I talked to George, got the sense that George felt slighted. I, I do um, probably think that at one time, Eddie and George were, quote-unquote, peers in some sort of way, meaning that they were, you know, Eddie had not become Eddie Van Halen that we all recognize today. This is 1977, 1976. And so when people go to a place called the Golden West Ballroom, which is in Norwalk, was this old dance hall that they turned into a, a place where they've done concerts. And I was able to interview the guy who promoted all those shows there. I mean, I've talked to people who said, you know, we would go and it'd be like George Lynch would be up there and we'd be like, oh, my God, that's the fucking greatest guitar player I've ever seen. And then Eddie Van Halen would come up and he's amazing. <laughs> it's incredible. So uh, do I, you know, get do I get the sense that George sort of realizes that there was a there was a uh, competition there that maybe Eddie went out on. Yeah, but do I think that George sort of you know walks around moping that you know about that and cares that much today? No, I don't. I think he has enormous respect for Eddie Van Halen. Um, you know, but but George was um, like I mentioned to you earlier. If you listen to those early Exciter tracks, I mean George is doing some pretty wild shit with the Whammy Bar. Um, yeah. You know, it doesn't mean that um, Eddie wasn't doing it too, but Eddie was sort of a latecomer to the Whammy Bar himself, and so there's. In terms of flash guitar playing, which we all recognize what '80s sort of created, George was flashy. I mean, George was George wasn't playing like Randy Rhodes was playing in 1978. You know, George was doing much more wild um, uh, playing. Yeah, I think what sets Andy, Eddie Van Halen apart more than the tapping is just his the sound and style, and really his compositions. Right, that's the musicality what makes of it him. All, right. Yeah, that's what makes him so impressive, and that's what made him so influential. What, I mean, if he didn't have the songs to push his guitar playing oh. to get people to listen to it, I mean, it really comes down to the songs more than anything. Right, and that's, and that's where I would circle back to Roth to say that Roth, you know, I'm not saying Roth was sitting in Gazaris in 1974 saying, you know what, we're going to play stadiums, you know, that's the plan. But I think as time went on, Roth, maybe more than anyone, knew that they had to get the songs together like you can't be up there doing i'm going home eddie's you know eddie's um i've talked to a ton of people who saw eddie and mammoth in the backyards in 70 71 eddie's big um closing song was i'm going home by um oh god you is know, that grand that, funk no it's um from the woodstock soundtrack and i cannot believe oh I cannot, 10 years after thank you yeah. thank you my apology yeah and so you know when that comes out that was some of the fastest guitar playing around. That was, you know, faster than Clapton, faster than whoever was around Page that moment. So, you know, Eddie used to do that note for note. People were like, oh, my God, you know. And so, um, but you can't get up there and do 12-minute versions of I'm Going Home and expect to get a record contract in 
so I think Roth sort of said, we, you know, we're going to get these songs together. I mean, he had the, Roth had the vision um, and understood that you've got to market yourself. You can't stand up there in blue jeans with a cigarette hanging out of your mouth and, you know, just wow people by how perfectly you can play cover songs. You know, which those guys could. I mean, those guys, people told me, no, numerous people told me they would play the entire second side of the Black Sabbath record. You know, like it would be like you listening to the record. Uh-huh. <laughs> in a backyard, right? Yeah. So and he's 16, right? And so the entire, um, you know, the entire um, sequence of songs on one of the sides of Live at Leeds. So this is three piece Mark Stone. I mean, and so to see this kid do that, that's what I want to bring out in the book, this sort of unbelievable talent. You know, sort of, you know, imitating someone else's songs is a certain level of talent. But as you point out, what Eddie is able to do is able to write songs, write riffs, and then Roth, I think Roth helping to shape those and say, yeah, we're going to tighten up the vocals. You know, that's the other thing too I would really want to, to um, get people thinking about is that, you know, a lot of those bands in the early 70s had, a, you know, think about Three Dog Night, these type of groups. The, the groups that were on the radio had a very, very good harmony sound. And, and Eddie couldn't sing, right? And so Roth can't sing all that well either. But what eventually comes out, of course, is that classic Van Halen sound that, uh, sound that has a sweet harmonies. Yeah. That's what makes that record, to me, great, is that it's not just about Eddie's incredible guitar playing, which to me was the foundational piece of heavy metal for the 80s, but it's also this um, shimmering pop sensibility that makes that album stand out to be like you know not only do they have the playing right they've got the heavy metal playing they got the screams you know roth has the chain around his waist on the album cover they've got the heavy metal right there but they're not a heavy metal group because listen to these songs right they're not it's not judas priest no it's not budgy no it's well like we said it didn't really sound like anything else it was unique it was and i guess that was mostly because of eddie's style eddie's guitar playing and how he wrote the song and just kind of fearless you know just a lot of individuality to the but so, the so, when the the songs were the vocal melodies just all David Lee Roth, or did Eddie? Do you think Eddie had ideas about the vocal melodies, or did he just write the music and then Roth wrote the words and the melodies? Yeah, I mean, I think if you listen to the, I think I, you know, the, the first thing I would say is that from everything I understand, Anthony didn't write. Yeah. Right. So, so Michael Anthony's out. He doesn't write songs. Um, Alex supposedly was a great arranger, um, but melodies probably Roth. I, I would think. Um, you know, I've never heard Eddie try to claim claim that that mantle. I don't think I ever heard him say like, "Oh, I wrote the melodies." Roth just sang the song. So right. I, you know, my take is that Roth um, was the guy who who wrote the melodies. And I, you know, again, I wouldn't wouldn't doubt that Templeman also, obviously, you know, like Jamie's crying and stuff like that. I'm sure Templeman had his own input on that. Um, Templeman actually sang on Van Halen, one which a lot of people don't know. Um, he sang backup vocals with them and stuff like that. So you know, I I'm sure that he helped craft those songs too, but. Yeah, I mean, I think Roth, you know, Roth was a guy who had a kind of that encyclopedic knowledge of, of pop music, too. Um, loved James Brown, loves, you know, Motown, as we mentioned earlier, and, and he liked what was on the radio. I mean, I think that Roth was a guy who, who ends up liking disco and funk. I mean, he's, he's just somebody who had a much wider vocabulary of music. Roth is extremely intelligent. I think he sort of was able to draw upon those influences and say, you know what, we're going to bring this together we're gonna, basically we're gonna put we're, look we're gonna slap beach boy harmonies on heavy metal and yeah. see what happens and uh back to the arrangements gene simmons says in his book some of those arrangements were mine <laughs> that's what gene simmons said I, yeah <laughs> no, I, and to be honest that i i haven't sat down 
and maybe I should, maybe that's a good point, maybe I should sit down and try to listen to the Simmons demo and then listen to some of the bootlegs that are around. I mean, one thing I would caution people about is that the bootlegs are oftentimes misdated and there's just sort of this, you know, that's I was collecting bootleg tapes back in the 80s and that was sort of a, uh, you know, cost of doing business. You get a tape, you'd be like, oh, that's not really one that is. So, um, you know, people will see a tape circulating with a certain date on it and nobody knows for sure if that's the ex- exact date in many cases. Sometimes right. you can be pretty sure, but, you know, like a New Year's Eve show and some other shows, you can be pretty sure. But, um, yeah, I mean, you know, Look, I think I think Gene deserves some credit for for certainly for seeing that. On the other hand, I think people need to recognize that in the fall of 1976, Van Halen has been on the strip at the at the Starwood. No, I shouldn't say the strip. He's been they've been at the Starwood, which was a big leap forward for them. They end up. I have a really great account of how that ends up happening. They end up. Um, getting to thanks to Rodney Bingenheimer and some other people, they end up getting to move from Gazaris to Starwood, uh, at least start to transition there. And so there was a buzz around Van Halen um, when they hit the Starwood. You know, they would kind of gone from being a Gazaris group to being a, a Starwood group, um, and there was a bit of a buzz around them. So basically, Gene's kind of coming in at the tail end of that first wave of buzz, if that makes sense. Yeah, seventy um, six, and so after. They flop with Gene. I, I think those guys were probably somewhat crestfallen. Um, and then there's a sense that you know what? Hey, it's you know maybe Van Halen isn't going to get anywhere. In other words, if Gene Simmons can't get a record deal for you, well, maybe you're not good enough to get signed yeah. by anybody. And so, but those guys, to their credit, soldier on and they they put their heads down and keep playing. And then Templeman comes along, um, you know, and that's that's how these things happen. Um, happen for Van Halen. I I think that. Um, the other thing, too, is that people should understand is that Gazaris was a place where you played covers. Now, um, could Van Halen occasionally slip into an original at Gazaris? Yeah, they could. But, um, um, I'm sorry, Mr. Gazari, Bill Gazari was was a guy who, for example, had a rule, from what I understand, that one disco song must be played per set. He had very, I mean, really, like one disco song. So they, you know. They, so is uh, that why they did those, like, Casey and the Sunshine Band? Yeah, and they okay. did um, FOP by... Um, um, Ohio players and that type of stuff. Right. Yeah, that was my understanding. Is you know, Roth. I think Roth liked those songs. Um, you know, I, there's, there's. It's funny. You'll be. I'll read old Rolling Stone interviews from Roth in the early '80s, and they'll talk about how Roth is sitting his room listening to a Shalimar record. You know, and so <laughs> I think Roth liked, liked that music. Um, you know, going back to that, he liked, he liked black music. Um, but um, yeah, that's that's part of the deal there too. And of course, um, in some of the demos. And the other tracks that you, you selected today, you know, there's um, there's uh, the the um, the, the uh, Bolin track, the grind, and uh, when you listen to that, I mean, I think that's really where you can kind of kind of get a sense that there was a sense that we have to sit here and do five sets of this shit. Um, you know, we're gonna have a good time doing it, but we're also gonna try to play some stuff that might be a little bit more progressive and more interesting. And that's sort of Eddie's. My guess is that's Eddie's um, take because there's I've heard people tell me that. Um, um, Eddie, they went into to Gazari's and Van Halen played Bebop Deluxe. And so, you know, did people, you know, know that before I said that now? Probably not. Um, Do you know what song? So, <laughs> yeah, they played um, Made in Heaven. Yeah, that's a good song.
question of style It's a time for giving In the two-star hotel Where breakfast in bed ahead It's just the price of a smile Yeah, and so I guess what I'm trying to say is that yeah, you know, you, you have to kind of stay within the parameters of that. Now that being said, at Gazaris, it was a cover, it was covers, right? You go to the Starwood, and you have to play originals, um, or mostly originals, and they kind of bent that rule a little bit. But that was the idea; you were supposed to play almost all originals. And as Jackie Fox observed to me, um, the fact that Van Halen was a Gazaris band hurt them at some point because no record label took seriously the idea that we're going to sign a band out of Gazaris. Because Gazaris is a teeny bopper place. You know, uh -huh. did it pay the bills? Yeah. Was it, you know, was it a venue that filled up kids and you know everyone made a little bit of money and that type of stuff and they got to do the dance contest and certainly was important for the band's development. But she said nobody in a record label was going to go. Oh, I got to go down to the Gazaris and sign some bands because they were seen as just cover bands who were just cheesy. I mean, that was what it was. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You know, when Van Halen makes that leap, they have they are basically treading on the support of Rodney Bingenheimer. In other words, Rodney and a couple of other people I'll discuss in the book are the guys who convinced the people at the Starwood to go ahead and do it. I mean, at first they were like, Rodney comes in and says, you know, we got to we got to uh, bring these guys in. They're great. They should let them play on Sunday night or Monday night, whatever the, my memory is failing me, but there was a night where the, you know, basically unsigned local bands were allowed to play one night at the Starwood. You know, so you had Buddy Miles and you had big bands ZZ Top playing on Friday night when they're in LA or whatever, but she had like an unsigned nobody bands playing on Monday, and they, you know, the guy says to him, the guy who booked the Starwood says, "Well, you know, I never heard of this band, Van Halen. Who are these guys?" And again, they're on, they're playing at they're playing at Gazaris, and the guy's like, "I who who are you talking about? Who's this band?" And eventually, you know, Bigenheimer has to go. Well, they play they play at Gazaris, and the guy was like, "We're not letting them in here," and he had to convince them, he had to beg them, you know, because the idea was that Gazaris was a place that bands that are going nowhere. You know, kind of the lifers, you know, who are not going to get anywhere. Um, you know, and that changes, obviously, the 80s. Because um, Ari's becomes the hair metal capital of the world and stuff like that. But that was sort of the sense. It was, you know, it was, it was, it was something out of a time warp. You have the Gazari's dancer, pictures on the wall. Uh, they do the dance contest. You know, that's like mid-60s go-go stuff. You know, go-go dancer stuff. And sort of, there's a sense that Gazari's is a place where kids from the suburbs who don't really know what rock music is about, they come in to go to Gazari's because they can get in. You know, you can come in at whatever you got in at 16. You could drink a Coke, supposedly, or whatever, and stand there. And, you know, that was the deal. Um, but it wasn't a place that serious rock bands would ever think about playing. Okay. So what's what's interesting is once they transition to uh, focusing on originals, they're unbelievably prolific. Like, it's insane how right. many songs they had. Right. It's, in, right. it's crazy how many songs they never even used. Right. And then right. all the way through 1984, they were still going back to that. Right. That pile of songs they had. So, I, I talked to one of their roadies named Tom, who worked with them in the early days, and he was saying he was working with them, um, and he was a, he was able to tour a little while with them uh, on Van Halen One. So he worked for them like seventy six, seventy seven into early seventy eight, and he said I would go to practice at Roth's basement, 
And it was like at one point, it was like every day it seemed like there'd be a new song. He'd be like, Atomic Punk? He'd be like, oh my God, that's a fucking great song. You know, like, ain't talking about love? Oh, fuck. That's an amazing <laughs> song. Like, he said they were just like, Eddie was in this this zone where he was just these, you know, they were just in such a peak of songwriting where the songs were just pouring out of the bullet head. These other songs that, you know, post, as you, as you observe, like post 77 demo, they were still writing these songs that never really got demoed appropriately but yet they still were able to draw upon for their records and so yeah it was just incredible um but that's you know that's again the great the greatness of eddie van halen is part because in my estimation those first six van halen records there's really hardly a bad track on them i mean it's arguable obviously people's tastes differ but there's you know they're they're great they're great records and great songs because of uh eddie and uh eddie and they wrote the songs yeah and, and there's even so many songs that they perform live that they never even recorded like well there's that song that I played on my Sunset Strip episode here's just what you wanted I think it's called that's yeah. an that's a great song and supposedly the only evidence that it ever even existed is that one live recording right right and there's yeah there's also that song no more waiting that's a great song one live recording of it nothing else Uh, and you wonder, there must be songs they had that were never even recorded live. That uh, you know, there's no record of them at all. Yeah, it's funny. There's a there's a a set list that's kicked around Facebook and stuff like that. I see if I can find it, send it to you. It's just a scrawled out piece of paper, and I've asked. I got it from Tom this roadie from around 1977, and there's a song on it. And he can't identify it. He's like, I don't remember what that song is. You know, he doesn't know if it's an original or cover. It's like one word. It's like I yeah, you know, I don't remember yeah. the word, but it's like Smith or something like that, or not whatever it is and he's like i don't know what that song is um you know i, I shouldn't have used the word smith because it's not aerosmith but it's something oddball like ivory or something like that and he's like i don't have no idea what that is cover and original i don't remember and yeah i'm sure there are songs that are gone um you know but the uh the uh obviously the different kind of truth album was their effort to sort of say okay we're going to go back to the well here and, and pull out what's left right well, yeah, I mean, like, She's the Woman was one of their earliest songs, I am I think, probably. One of their earliest Roth era songs. And, uh, yeah, you know, Bullethead, like you've mentioned a couple times, that was one of... Now, so Bullethead, you said, was in between the demo and the first album? Yeah, somewhere in there, yeah. So um, seven, it's a 77 recording, and um, there's an old interview with Eddie where he says that, that was, you know, 
again, right? So they're signed to Warner Brothers, but when they, when these guys are walking, so it's it's seventy seven. They haven't released a record yet. They're walking around the strip. I mean, everyone's going crazy for you know um, the early versions of the Motels and the and the uh, these other punk groups that are around the Dogs, um, these other groups, and so that's really where the the scene is. Um, there's Hollywood Free Radio, and that that um, then the Mask I think comes around, and so. You know, these guys are walking around going, fuck, look at this. And they're sort of they're sort of laughing at this. The Van Halens are and, and because they don't think these guys can play, right? And they're sort of mm-hmm. they're sort of, I think, probably half pissed off because they realize that, you know, our type of music is now coming out of style. But on the other hand, they think these fucking guys are they're terrible, right? They can't they're not they're not the type of musicians we are. Um, you know, they could be great performers. I'm not knocking all those people on that believe me, I'm not knocking the people who played on the on the scene. I'm just saying if you grew up emulating Eric Clapton, emulating Jeff Black, you know, if those are your heroes and you hear that type of guitar playing, that type of songwriting, you're not going to be impressed. Yeah. Your your feeling on the Gene Simmons demos is is it too produced to you or I just think it sounds stiff. You know, to me it sounds very 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 stiff like they were nervous or it just isn't loose. And I and I listen to the difference between the Warner Brothers demo, which is just you know months later, and the Simmons demo, I, I just hear a very nervous band. Um, I also think that all those guys had played, they had um, recorded demos earlier. There's a number of demos. Um, from There's some from 74, like a four-song demo. There's a four-song demo from 76. They'd played demos before, but the idea of sort of a real, of, um, you know, professionally produced, serious demo, tra- demo um, recording at a huge studio like um, I think S- or they did it at uh, Village Recorders in L.A. Um, and then they, they did solos at Electric Lady in New York. I just think they sound nervous. Um, and, and, you know, interestingly enough, I think the House of Pain is to me um, a song that really is pretty incredible with all of the different guitar tracks that they did, this sort of, this sort of galloping guitar tracks and these recordings of all these different levels of tracks. But um, I think when Eddie and those guys listened back to it, I think they thought it was just too overproduced and didn't like it um i i also think too it's interesting because i think on house of pain when when uh, roth sings pain i won't imitate it to make everyone pull the headphones off their head but <laughs> he does that sort of um death metal growl I, I have to believe that simmons sort of channeling god of thunder or something like that to him going you know take it down low and you know make it sound evil um the other thing i'd say too about house of pain just as an aside there's a few other songs like eyes of the night you know roth loved movies and the the, the um and horror movies and if you read the the lyrics to those they're really not sunshine and light like how's a pain is about um you know torturing you know somebody that this this mad scientist lab and eyes of the night is about a peeping tom you know i think templeman probably heard that stuff if you heard it all and was like mm, you know we're not gonna <laughs> we're not gonna do those things we're gonna we're gonna keep this you know linda ronstead pop i, I don't mean that they, they wanted to write pop songs but he wants material and themes that are going to be southern california sunshine do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. Eyes of the Night is another one. Really good song that only exists, I think, in live versions. Yeah. Just yeah. one of those songs that they just never even tried to use, which is crazy. <laughs> that yeah. they had so many songs like that. Yeah, but I mean, can you imagine the middle of, you know, you're listening to you're listening to Jamie's Crying, and you're listening to Feel Your Love Tonight, and the next song is about a peeping Tom who's like creeping up your window. <laughs> Alex Van Halen on heavy artillery for your listening and dancing pleasure. Oh man, we say, what's up next here, Maestro? A little something here. There's a love song also 
As you've noticed, we've been playing quite a few of our own. This is another one. We say a story about a man who falls in love with a girl across the street. And the only thing that's different about this love affair is he watches her with a pair of binoculars. <laughs> No, that's that, that's what I mean. Is that I don't know if it was Roth or Templeman or somebody kind of understood that you know our band's sensibility is not about we're about a good time, we're about fun, we're about um, exuberance. You know, we're going to play heavy, hard songs, but we're not going to, you know, we're not going to do like the Black Sabbath, you know, Hand of Doom type of lyrical themes. But then they could have gone back to Eyes of the Night, like on Fair Warning or something. But then they had so many great songs for Fair Warning, they didn't even right. need it. Right. I, for me, Fair Warning is my favorite Van Halen album. I think it's just song for song. It's just so great. And that's the one where, how many of those songs even came out? Of, mean Street came right. from that Voodoo Queen song, but I don't right. really know. Is there another song on there that came from the well? Yeah, yeah I'm kind of going through them in my mind. Um, you know, I think a lot of those songs were were new, and I may, of course, be making a huge error here and not remembering one of the songs that are they're drawn from, but I think that's the only one that comes from the demo that I know about. Yeah, the um, is, is Mean Street. Yeah, you've um, got like half of Van Halen 2, half of Women and Children first, come from all their early stuff. Um, but yeah, Fair Warning, I think, was pretty much new stuff and really great. <laughs> yeah, and, there's, and of course, there's, you know, there's songs like on that demo, like Big Trouble and stuff like that, that really, I mean, I think Big Trouble could have been on Diver Down. And, and there, I think your point is there's material that could have been drawn from the demo and put on Fair Warning. But they had so many good songs they had written, or Eddie had written, right? Right, that, yeah. It, why bother? Right, exactly. Yeah, he must have just had a creative burst or something, because Fair Warning is great. And they did, yeah, like I said, they didn't even have to go back, because, you know, what, it's at least half of Women and Children First was from their early stuff. And Yeah, um, right. And, and then, of course, they're sort of going back even farther, right? They're going back to Simple Rhyme. They're going back right. to, um, that's the stuff that, that's Mark Stone era stuff, by the right, way. Right, yeah. So that's how far they're going. Um, to do that, to do some, that stuff, the stuff on the um, the second side is yeah, that's sort of more of a 
or take your whiskey home and yeah, uh, yeah. simple rhyme. That's that's yeah. That's those are both from Mark Stone, right? Yeah. Right. Right. But then you get Diver Down, which was like they didn't even have any songs. <laughs> it's like they put that together from covers, and uh, you know, Diver Down just seems like a record that they just kind of threw together. Fair Warning was his creative burst. Then Diver Down, they got nothing. Hang 'em High, I think, came from the early. That right, was a reworked early song. Right. Right, and and uh, I believe they rec- actually recorded um, Big Trouble for Diver Down and never used it. And they may have recorded House of Pain too. Um, you know, that's Eddie's memory in some interview. I mean, I don't know if that's actually true or not, if they actually worked up the tracks and actually laid it down, but that was the plan. And I, I don't know why they didn't do, yeah, like to me, Big Trouble would have been perfect on uh, on Diver Down. But um, yeah, the, you know, the story goes, and again, this is stuff that to me, people know these stories and that's why I wanted to write the, the, the book about the early days um, is that, you know, the record company was concerned about probably two things. Number one, Diver Down, um, excuse me, Fair Warning didn't sell as well as some of their, their sales were declining. Yeah. And so the other thing was that they wanted them to get out. Um, you know, they wanted them to get back to work, um, pretty quickly. And so there was pressure to f- sort of hurry up. Um, in other words, you come off the road from fair warning. You just did this huge tour. You've, you know, you've gone around the globe four times, which by the way, as we all should recognize, that's not exactly the, the easiest lifestyle. I mean, yeah, it might be all like fucking chicks and having a good time, but you're also, you know, developing a good cocaine habit. You're developing a drinking problem and you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's an exhausting, I'm not trying to say what you feel sorry for these guys, but you know, it's, uh, you're, you're definitely going to be burned out is my point after doing that like four tours in four years like that um, in the sense is hurry up and get back in the studio and make us another record now because uh, we need more sales. And that was Warner Brothers, you know, put out Pretty Woman. I think that comes out in in January of 82, February, um, the single. And uh-huh. then then they go back and they do the whole record. But that was, you're right, that's a that's a quick slapped out record. And to me, that record doesn't sound anywhere near as good as, um, as 1984 or Fair Warning. And I think actually Van Halen 2 and Diver Down are the two of the, um, the least pleasant listening albums in terms of the production. I mean, they're not terrible, but I just don't think they sound as good. Yeah, well, I mean, Diver Down is pr- it's pretty easy to say that's the worst of the Roth albums. <laughs> I think almost anyone would agree with that. But um, And then House of Pain ends up on 1984, but very different. Right. Very different. Not nearly as good, in my opinion, as the song yeah. they did with Gene Simmons.
Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, you know, to me again, like notice, right? So the, 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 the horror movie, mad scientist, Frankenstein lyrics of House of Pain in 76 go away and Roth rewrites it to be a bondage song and which is, you know, much more in Van Halen's uh, wheelhouse at that point in terms of the sex theme. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, actually, interestingly enough, that was when I you know, first got into Van Halen. It was, it was 1984. I was uh, 16, 15 years old, 15 years old. Um, and the, one of the first things I ever got was the, the Jump single. And so it was Jump on one side, and then you flip it over, and uh, it's uh, House of Pain. And so I always have kind of a soft spot for that version of House of Pain um, because I got it. And then, you know, after I bought the, the, the 45, I, like, went back and got the – got the tape you know so i think probably I, you know, my allowance money i was like oh i'll just buy the 45 because it's two dollars and then i was like oh, i really like this i'm gonna get go get the whole album and, um but yeah very different you're right very very different um less complex in some ways and um the uh so we have yeah they have the two versions of it from demo you have the simmons one and then you have the warner brothers version and then you eventually have the one that came out in 84 yeah and then on those on the warner demos there's like there's the song get the show on the road which right basically the bridge and chorus become Romeo Delight but he's Roth just wrote new verses I guess yeah and and they got rid of the chorus to get the show on the road chorus that they had they just right. cut it out and of course the song itself I mean for, I get the show on the road to me is an incredible song I mean obviously it draws from uh, it will be used for Romeo Delight so it's familiar to people parts of it but it's a great song <laughs> Voodoo Queen is great too. I don't think it's as good as Mean Street though, but um, and well, you know, here I wanted to give a uh, sorry to cut you off. I want to give a quick plug here to Michael Anthony, where I think like he does all those screams at the end with Roth. I mean, I think that's kind of to me that's really gives me chills every time I hear it. So you know, if we're gonna give Michael Anthony credit for his vocals, that's a great track for me vocally because Michael he does sort of a, a duet at the end with the screams with Roth in some sort of ways. Yeah, and it's really cool to hear. You can hear the Mean Street riffs underneath, but it's just a completely different uh, melody and lyrics, pretty much. Her desire, and when the jungle's steaming, 
There's the song Put Out the Lights. Is that on the Simmons demo too? I know it's on the Warners. Might be on the Simmons too. But uh, that's a really good song. And then that became Beats Working. Right. Right. Different Kind of Truth. What about We Die Bold? You know anything about that song? I, you know, I don't. And that's uh, to me, that's one of the ones that that uh, the riff is okay. It just doesn't seem to have the same. Um, to me, it doesn't have the same songcraft as some of the other other songs. The other one is uh, Light in the Sky, which I think is another song that I sort of I don't think they really did very much with. Um, that night, light up the sky, which is what they wrote for the '79 um, Van Two, but Light in the Sky. I don't know very much about it. I don't think anybody really knows very much about it. I don't even know when it was, you know, I don't even think there's any live recordings of it. I don't, unless this stuff, there's certainly stuff probably not circulating, as you know, with live recordings. Um, but I, I have never heard it played live.
And then another really interesting one on the Warner demos is a song called Bring On The Girls, right. which basically is just beautiful girls with some different lyrics, I guess. Right. Yeah, there's a song that kind of reminds me of on present hots on for nowhere which uh-huh. is sort of that same sort of funky riff and you know i think inspiration comes from lots of way places and maybe or maybe not but yeah i think that's a great a great riff and i think the lyrics are better on on van halen too too and i think that's there's um to me there's almost like you say roth tighten up the lyrics and the melodies i think in many cases that's what you you get when you listen to um the van halen albums um is that there's an improvement between the demos and the and the uh, albums, uh, a significant improvement. They made the right choices in my estimation when it came to, to melodies and to lyrics. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, sometimes when you listen to the early demos, like the like that In a Simple Rhyme from 74, it's almost like they're just scat vocals. Like he's hardly even got a verse. I guess the question to ask is, how do you feel about Van Hagar? <laughs> Here's the thing about, you know, it's funny. I, I saw I, I saw Sammy Hagar fronted Van Halen a number of times as a kid. Um, 
I saw Roth solo and stuff. And so, you know, I, I was, I was there. Um, I, I'm not one of these guys who want to airbrush myself out of history. Um, I don't think it's aged as well in my estimation, the, the Hagar records. Um, I don't have any particular ax to grind against Sammy Hagar. Um, I actually am a huge, huge, huge fan of the first Montrose record. Huge fan. Yeah, well, that's something uh, we haven't even brought up that was definitely very important to the Van Halen story, too. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. A huge fan of that record. I love it. And, uh, you know, so I listen to that album regularly. Um, uh, you know, I'm talking like once a week at least I put that on and listen to it. So, um, you know, I'm not... I just think that um, I don't think Van Halen could have gone on as a going concern anyway, considering all the problems they had in the band. There wasn't going to be another record made. You know, um, there was just Roth's ego and whatever else was going on with those guys. They were angry at him about whatever they were angry about. But uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think they. I don't think they hold up. What do you think? Yeah, I never liked. I never liked it. Well, God bless you for that, right? You're that <laughs> if I could go back and do it all over again, I'd be like. <laughs> I would say I hated those guys. Um, you know, I actually have this very distinct memory of sitting in the arena in New Jersey in this, the summer of '86, and Van Halen has come through, and they're, you know, they're making fun of Roth on stage, you know, Hagar and stuff. And I was kind of like, uh, I don't want to cheer for this, like, you know, like right. half the crowd. And I'm sitting there like, you know, just I thought it was a little bit. The whole thing was a little bit too pro wrestling and stupid. Even I recognized at that point how childish that was. It's like, you know, just move on. I was like 17, and I understood that. Or 16, I was like, just move on to something else. Well, and then, how, well, how, what did you think of A Different Kind of Truth when that came out? Yeah, you know, I, I was very excited when I heard the um, the album. Um, I liked it. I, I, I really hated Tattoo. I got to say that. Um, yeah, right. I, I like it, and I was like, this is, I just think it was not a good song. Um, that's another song, actually, that was rewritten from a song called um, Down in Flames, which is one we never even talked about. That was a song that was written... Um, on the 78 tour, probably somewhere around that. And then it ends up being sort of recycled into you're no good. Okay. The, vo the, the swells at the beginning, that's uh -huh. uh, in that song. And then the, but the kind of the verses and the riffs become tattoo. And I just think it's, it's not a uh, great song. Mm -hmm. I read some review that said tattoo is not a good, of, as good of a song as Dave and Eddie seem to think it is. And that's the truth. I think they thought it was a, you know, some sort of great pop song. And I just don't think it's very good at all. Um, that said, now that I've bashed it, um, you know, I think all things being what they are, that's a album that exceeded my expectation. I, of course, have like a lot of fans who have um, interest in aging rock groups. You have this fear that you're going to be totally humiliated as a fan when they put out a terrible <laughs> album. Everyone has that. Um, but I don't think it's, I don't, I think it's a good rock album. Do I think it stands up with the, the first six ones? No. But do I think it's, you know, it's a, if that's the last thing they do ever, do I think that's a way to go out for the band? Yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's a respectable rock album. There's great some great playing on it. Um, I really like Stay Frosty. I think that's like that's the classic Van Halen boogie. We haven't even talked about their love of boogie rock. I mean, you know, Grand Funk, right? right. That's ZZ Top. That's what Van Halen made their bones on. Um, you know, even after Roth joined, um, they stopped doing. Again, that sort of proto metal. Like they're not doing Deep Purple songs per se. Like they're doing, yeah, they might be doing maybe I'm a Leo, but they're not pulling out like let's do Speed King and Bloodsucker. You know, we're not going to do that. Right. Um, but they did do that sort of boogie rock. Um, I thought very, very well, and that's you know, Stay Frosty to me is is fantastic. Um, you know, is there also to me? I, I got to interview Michael Anthony for the book. Super nice guy. I will let everybody know that he is exactly as advertised. Um, awesome guy. Um, you know, do I do I have a sense of, of regret that they weren't able to patch it up with Michael Anthony and, and 
do an album with them. Yeah, I mean, I think it's I think it's um, unfortunate. I'll say that that it's really unfortunate. And uh, but um, yeah, I mean, I think I think it's I think it's uh, there's some, definitely some some really really good tracks. I thought Blood and Fire, which is a you know a, a song that I guess was done around 1984 originally um, as a demo that was going to be used for. Uh, the, the uh, wildlife soundtrack. So I, really there's good I songs think it's on. I have that soundtrack, and I I think it's just an instrumental. It's instrumental. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, and then they reworked some of that for. That's probably my favorite song on the record. I yeah, would say. yeah, and it's it, it sounds different. I mean, I'm not. Uh, we we could have a whole conversation about the way albums sound today. Um, you know, I know that, I know they're really made to sound good in earbuds. That's the goal, like the of the producers and the mastering engineers is like, oh, it has to sound good in earbuds. To me, it doesn't sound anything like those earlier records, you know, and they're not, no. it's not going to. And so, you know, am I a little disappointed by the way it sounds? Yeah. But you know, again, it's like, that's it. If they, if Van Halen breaks up tomorrow, I don't think that's a terrible final chapter for Van Halen. No, it, it, it's, it's nothing for them to be embarrassed of. It's kind of, it was kind of weird that so much of it was uh, recycled early demos, but I guess the idea of we want to try to make a classic sounding Van Halen album, why not go back to some of our classic songs um, yeah, and I, I, I well, I guess Wolfgang was like a driving force in that too. I think. Right, right, and that's sort of one of the things that I I do recognize, and I think anyone out there is a fan who sh- should recognize is that um, if it wasn't for Wolfgang Van Halen, that never would have happened. That reunion, I think that's that he was the one who pressed his father to get Roth back in the band, and then also was the guy who was kind of waving the flag for the early early years as well. And so, you know, I I, um, I think people are, are really kind of assholes the way they write stuff about Wolfgang Van Halen online and stuff like that. He's this and that. And I think, you know, he said he's kid. What's he going to do? You know, and he's, I think he's by all accounts seems to be a nice kid. And, uh, I don't think you could possibly blame him for any of it. Any of no, no, no. But people, I mean, people, you know, people say the most absurd things obviously, yeah. but yeah, I don't, yeah. My point is that, yeah, it's just the way it played out. It wouldn't have, it would not have happened if, Eddie didn't want to play with his son as well. That's true. I think that's true as well. I think anyone who looks at the last five to seven years, ten years of Van Halen, well, last ten years, there was a lot of wheel spinning that went on post-Hagar after Sharon where nothing was getting done. Um, you know, Eddie was struggling with his demons, and there was, there, was no, there was no way forward. right? And I think Wolfgang helped him find a way forward. All right, so I hope you enjoyed that. Once again, you can find Greg Renoff at Greg Renoff on Twitter and Check out his website, vanhalenrising.com. He's got a lot of cool pictures on there, and you can keep tabs on what's happening with his book, Van Halen Rising. And also go to the blog, rockandorrollpodcast.blogspot.com. There will be a complete list there in order of the songs that I played on today's episode. And now, to play us out. What does that mean, to play us out? I don't know what that means, to play us out. What does that mean? To end the show? Yeah. I'm going to leave you with the Gene Simmons demo version from 1976 of a song that would end up on the first Van Halen album. I think this is a really cool recording of the song. This was produced by Gene Simmons, 1976. It's called On Fire. Until next time.
be back. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.